This morning we continue on in our sermon series in the book of Exodus. This morning we're going to look at that classic Mother's Day passage, Exodus chapter 5 to 7. Uh, actually, as we, uh, as we think about this uh, section of scripture this morning, I want to start with a vision that a man named John had some 1,300 years after our passage for this morning, these events take place. So the New Testament book of Revelation is a, a series of visions given to the Apostle John, one of Jesus's closest followers. Uh, he was exiled around the, the 90s AD on the island of Patmos, right, a good thousand plus years after the Exodus narrative took place. And the book of Revelation is, if you will, an uncovering. It's a, it's a revealing. The visions in Revelation serve to pull the curtain back, so to speak, and show us a glimpse of a reality that's not normally visible to us. Uh, much of Revelation shows us what's really going on in the spiritual realm, what's happening behind the scenes of our ordinary world. And so let me read just one of these visions that we see in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. So we read there, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So you have this extraordinary vision of a pregnant woman. So there's a Mother's Day connection for you. I didn't even intend that, right? She's, she's giving birth to a child. And strangely enough, a dragon is standing by waiting to devour the child. The child, we're told, is destined to rule the nations. And it seems clear that the actions of this dragon are intended to prevent that from happening. But his plans are frustrated. The child is swept up into heaven. The woman flees into the wilderness. And we go on to read then that there's a great war in heaven and this dragon who's identified for us as Satan is thrown down. And then we read in verse 13, the story continues. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay, so what on earth does that have to do with the book of Exodus? 
Let me just walk you quickly through some of the imagery here in the book of Revelation. So I don't necessarily have time to show all my work, but I think what, I, what we see here is pretty clear. If you have questions, you can go online and listen to the sermon that we had here on Revelation 12 sometime back. The, this woman giving birth represents the people of God, particularly the nation of Israel. Uh, the dragon, as is made explicit for us there, is, is a picture of the devil. Uh, the male baby is the Lord Jesus, born to rule the nations, ascended to God's throne in heaven in fulfillment of that destiny. And so in a way, this, this vision that John has can serve as, as something of a summary of the plot line of the entire Bible. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebel against God. Uh, Satan, the evil one, had come to them in the form of a serpent. Right? In, in Revelation 12, verse 9, he's called that ancient serpent. Uh, Satan tempted Eve to disobey the Lord, and, and she'd gone for it. Adam went along with it as well, and in response, the Lord pronounced judgment on the evil one. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord says, I will put enmity between you, that is, the, the serpent, the dragon, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God's promise that he will send an offspring, a child of Eve, who will destroy this serpent. And the Lord declares that there will be enmity, there will be a war between Satan and his offspring, and the offspring of Eve, and ultimately this child who will crush his head. Right, pretty much from the moment in the garden that God promises that one of Eve's descendants is going to defeat him, the serpent is at work in the rest of the Bible trying to prevent him from coming and ruling. That seems to be the picture for us there in Revelation chapter 12. Right, the, the, the dragon chases the woman into the desert and tries to kill her. He, he even goes after her other children who are identified for us there in Revelation as followers of Jesus. And that's significant for us because pretty much the entire Old Testament is a story of a war between the serpent, the snake, Satan, and this promised offspring of Eve. So for just a few examples in the Old Testament, you see this sort of diabolical warfare on God's people in, in the way that Cain murders Abel in chapter 4 of Genesis. You see it in, in Haman's hatred for the Jewish people in Persia, as it's recorded for us in the book of Esther. You see it in Adaliah's attempt to wipe out the royal line of David completely in 2 Kings. It's written all over the Old Testament. Uh, Satan and his followers, his offspring, are at war with God and his people. I think we see this principle very clearly in our passage from the book of Exodus for this morning. We, as we come to examine chapters 5 through 7, are going to be looking at a face-off that is going to occupy really the next narrative, the next movement in the narrative of the book of Exodus. It's a battle between the hard-hearted Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Moses, the man sent by the Lord to lead his people to freedom. And I think we're meant to understand this battle as yet another attempt by the great serpent to destroy God's people and to prevent their ultimate salvation from ever coming to fruition. I think we're supposed to see in these chapters that, that Pharaoh is something of a puppet. His strings are being pulled by the devil himself. 
And so with the time that we have this morning, I'd like to investigate two ways that I think we can see in Pharaoh's actions in chapters 5 through 7, we can see the, the, the workings of the evil one. So first, two things. Let's see Pharaoh, the cruel taskmaster. And then we'll see Pharaoh, the unbeliever. So a cruel taskmaster and an unbeliever. I think you're going to be helped if you have your Bible open to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to work through chapters 5 through 7. That's way too much for us to actually read all of. I'll be sort of referencing um, some things that are going on. It'll probably help you to have your Bible open. I'll try to read uh, the most important things. Um, but I think you'll be helped if you have a Bible open in front of you. So first, let's, let's look at Pharaoh, the cruel taskmaster. If you remember, if you've been here for uh, Seth and Mike's earlier sermons in the book of Exodus, the, the people of Israel have been enslaved in the nation of Egypt for many years. Uh, when we left off last week, we were on something of a high note. At the end of chapter 4, the people of Israel are full of faith. They, they hear the message that God is going to save them. They are rejoicing. They're worshiping the Lord because he's going to deliver them from bondage. And, and so there in chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron, his brother, they go to Pharaoh, and they ask for freedom to go and worship the Lord. And there was probably something of an expectation that things would go smoothly. But there in chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh shoots them down. In verse 3, they reiterate their request. And then we read starting in verse 4. It says, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that, lab that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So this amounts to something of a disaster. Uh, Pharaoh assumes that the Israelites' motivation for wanting to, to leave must be laziness. This is just a, a ploy to get out of the work they're meant to be doing. And so in response to the Lord's command that he let the Israelites go, he doubles down. Instead of just making bricks, now they have to first find the necessary straw before they make the bricks. Straw was used in brick making apparently to, to help moisture sort of uh, evaporate from the bricks so that they would be strong. Uh, Pharaoh is outraged that the Israelites should want rest. Uh, there in verse 5, he, he accuses Moses, you make them rest from their burdens. In verse 8, he says they are idle. In verse 17, when an Israelite foreman complains, he, he tells him twice, he says, you are idle. You are idle. And so what's Pharaoh's prescription for the problem? More work, heavier burdens. There in verse 4, he says, get back to your burden. There in verse 8, he says, there's going to be no drop-off in production, even though you don't have the supplies. The conclusion there in verse 9, what these people need is a heavier burden. I think if you're familiar with some of the themes of the Bible, I think you see when you sort of pull on this particular thread and you follow it back to its source, you find that it leads us to the devil himself. The Bible uses these kinds of images to capture the work of the evil one. He's described in various places in the Bible as a captor, 
He is an enslaver. He's a, he's a slave master. Uh, the idea is that Satan hates the image of God in human beings. And so he's always working to diminish and deceive and enslave. Right? The picture that the Bible gives us is that the, the devil is a cruel taskmaster. And, and that sin amounts to terrible slavery. So all over the world, billions of people today suffer and toil under this bondage. The, the, the slavery of anger and pity, self-pity rather, and lust, greed, pride, fear. Uh, these things all serve as something like Satan's overseers. And the, the world toils in service to them. Right? When, it, when it comes to sin, the prescription is always more bricks, less straw. Right? So just, for example, ask someone who, who drinks compulsively if they really enjoy it. Ask someone who can't stop looking at pornography if it brings them life and happiness. Right? Our world can imagine no greater happiness than the ability to do whatever we want to do. Right, we've thrown off uh, all restraints in our pursuit of, pursuit of freedom. But when we get it, we find ourselves not free, but actually enslaved, uh, unable to stop, fearful, anxious, sick, angry, bitter, empty, uh, with no real solution other than to simply pursue more sin, uh, to commit more sins, to try and clean up the mess that we've made. Right? Sin is a kind of slavery. Sin is, in a sense, its own punishment. There, there's no rest. There's no satisfaction. There's, there's no sense that, that, that I'm enough. Sin, as it's presented to us in the Bible, is simply an ever-increasing burden. And maybe you can identify what that feels like. Maybe you've tried living for pleasure, but it's never enough. It doesn't actually make you happy. Uh, maybe you've tried to live for success and achievement, but you simply wind up always feeling like there's more to do. You always have to prove yourself. Uh, the good news, friends, is that the, the real true God is not at all like Pharaoh. The, the Lord Jesus is not at all like the evil one. The message of the book of Exodus is that God is a God who delivers his people from bondage with a mighty hand. And that ultimately happens not, not primarily through the work of Moses, but, but more than a thousand years later through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came to set captives free. Jesus came to intervene, to throw open prison doors, to break shackles, to make us sons of the king rather than slaves of a cruel taskmaster. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 says, Jesus came to deliver all those who were subject to lifelong slavery. Right, Pharaoh, I think, is meant to give us a picture of how Satan regards you. Let your burden be increased. But Jesus calls to us in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. Christian, the question for you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who gives you rest? That the, that the burden that he presents to you is actually light? Right? Sin is our problem. It enslaves us. It burdens us. But sin also presents itself to us as the solution to our problem. Right? Sin's prescription for our problem is more sin. And so if we follow it, we just become more burdened, more anxious, more deeply trapped in fruitless patterns of behavior and thinking. And not only does sin present itself to us as a solution, but it tempts us to believe that, that God and his ways are actually the problem. Right? Satan wants you to live in a delusion, that, that following your lusts and your desires is true freedom. And following the Lord is slavery. Right? I think you see something of this dynamic at work in our passage in the way the Israelites respond. They, the Lord declares their freedom, their salvation. But things don't immediately get better. Pharaoh responds not by letting them go, but by making life harder for them. And so when things get hard and things get worse, who do the Israelites blame? They blame the Lord. There in verses 20 to 21 of chapter 5, they go to Moses and complain. They say, you've made us stink in Pharaoh's sight. You've made our burden heavier, Moses. There in verses 22 and 23, Moses even turns around and basically offers the same complaint to the Lord. The Israelites blame God for their problem. And then to whom do they go for help? They actually go to Pharaoh. You see there in verses 15 to 16, they go to him. They plead their case to him as if he is going to help them. Right? They even call themselves in verses 15 to 16. Two times they refer to themselves when speaking to Pharaoh as your servants. They say, look, we're your servants. They say that to the man who's tormenting them. Right? Can you see how backwards that is? The Lord has said, I'm going to set you free so that you can serve me. The Lord says, I'm going to load your arms with blessings. I'm going to bring you out to a, to a paradise where you can rest and you can serve me there. But when things get hard, they go to Pharaoh for help and they say, we're your servants. The issue for the Israelites, friends, is the same one that presents itself to us every day. Who can lighten your burden? When in trouble... Will they flee to Pharaoh, their oppressor, or will they believe that the Lord is able to save them? Christian, who is able to save you? When life is painful, when the suffering feels overwhelming, when you're anxious or fearful or lonely or tempted, when you're trapped in sin, who can save you? There in chapter 6, verse 1, we see the Lord's response to their complaints. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The Lord makes it clear that the plan is still on. Yes, Pharaoh has launched a counter-offensive. He's made life harder for the Israelites, but things have not gone awry. Salvation is not derailed. 
God asserts his right to be trusted. There in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 6, the Lord gives Moses seven statements. He says, I will, and seven different times. They amount to basically four foundational promises. Moses comes to the Lord with his doubts, and God reaffirms his commitment. There at the beginning of verse 6 of chapter 6, he he promises them liberation. He says, I'm going to give you freedom. There at the end of verse 6, he promises them redemption. The idea of redemption is paying the price for for a prisoner or a slave's release. Here the Lord promises at the end of verse 6 that they will be redeemed. Now, incidentally, what we're going to find out as we go through the book of Exodus is that the price for their redemption is actually going to be paid by the Egyptians. The The great acts of judgment, the ten plagues are coming, and the Egyptians will be the one who pay the redemption price. Uh, The third promise is there in verse 7. God promises them adoption. He says, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. See, in ancient custom, it it was the family members who had the right to redeem someone. Right? If you were indebted, your family honor was at stake. And so your family members oftentimes would pay off your debt and redeem you if they were able. Right? The relationship between the people of Israel and the Lord is one of family. He is their father. The redemption of his people is not merely about justice, but it's about, it's about love. The father loves Israel, and so he is going to redeem them. There in verse 8, the, the final of the four promises is the promise of a, a possession. The Lord promises to bring them into the land. The promise of land was central to the covenant that God had made back in the book of Genesis with Abraham. And so here God reaffirms the the terms, that he has a land prepared for his people, a place that is completely different than the land of Egypt. They will no longer live in the land of bondage, but the Lord will bring them to a place of rest. And why is God doing these things? Why is he so committed to these promises? Well, he tells us there in chapter 6, at the end of verse 5, it's because he remembers his covenant. God is a covenant keeper. He's true to his promises. He has compassion on his people, and so he will do what he said he will do. There in Exodus 6, verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Well, how wonderful. The Lord is going to save Israel. He hasn't forgotten He's not thrown off course by Pharaoh's actions. There's actually a very sad conclusion there in chapter 6, verse 9. We read there, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Their pain was simply too great. They were, they were so broken that they couldn't believe the Lord's promises. That brings us to the second thing for us to see today. So again, as we pull at this thread of the war between the ancient serpent, the devil, and the seed of the woman, right, the savior that will come from God's people, the second thing for us to see is Pharaoh, the unbeliever. Pharaoh simply doesn't believe the Lord. And significantly, he doesn't want the Israelites to believe the Lord. 
So go back to chapter 5, verse 2. It says there, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? The, the, the word there, the, the name that Pharaoh uses is Yahweh. Right? God's sort of personal name that he had revealed uh, to Moses. Who is Yahweh? In a sense, that's the central question of the book of Exodus. Who is this God who demands that his people be freed? Who is this God that demands that the world worship him? Well, of course, Moses already knows. He is the great I am, as he reminds Moses in chapter 6, verse 2. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and friends, by the end of the book of Exodus, really actually about halfway through the book of Exodus, when the Egyptian army is floating face down in the Red Sea, Pharaoh gets an answer to his question. God is going to give this greatest of kings a theology lesson. He will have an advanced degree in the doctrine of God by the time all of this is over. But for the moment, he sneers. He delights in his contempt. Right? He's not asking an honest question there. He's, he's saying, who is Yahweh? Who does Yahweh think he is that I should listen to him? You see, in ancient Egypt, the, the Pharaoh was considered to be divine. Right? Their mythology held that he was a descendant of a, a super god who had come to earth to be involved in the affairs of men. Right? It's significant. There in verse 9 of chapter 5, when Pharaoh says, let heavier work be laid on them, uh, that word that, that's translated in our, in our ESV as, as work is actually the, the Hebrew word abad. It, it means service. It actually has the sense of, of worship. Right? In fact, the Lord had demanded that the people of Israel be freed so that they could uh, abad him in the desert. The Lord wants the Israelites to be free so that they might serve him. Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go because he wants them to serve him. Right? This is a battle for worship. Uh, Moses says, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. Pharaoh replies, thus says Pharaoh. And so what's developing here is a showdown between the king of Egypt and the God of the universe. Who is more powerful? Who is it that the Israelites should heed? Uh, perhaps the key to understanding this entire section of Scripture is there in chapter 5, verse 9. Right? Pharaoh's command to his overseers regarding the Israelites. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it. Right? We've already seen that. Uh, Pharaoh represents the cruel sort of taskmaster slavery that Satan imposes on God's people. And look at what he says next. That they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. What is it that Pharaoh wants? Well, as the, as the devil's puppet, he wants the same thing that the evil one has always wanted. For people not to listen to the Lord. What does he want? He wants unbelief. He wants his word to be the ultimate authority. He wants them to ignore what God has said so that he can live the way he wants to live. 
Right? Even there in verse 9 of chapter 5, he calls the words of Yahweh lies. Right? God had told the Israelites that he would deliver them. And Pharaoh says, if I give them more work to do, that will teach them not to listen. Right? He's trying to undermine the confidence that God's people have in the word of God. And friends, again, that is at the root of all sin. Sin says that God is a liar. Sin doesn't believe that what God says is actually true. Right? Sin says that God's word cannot be trusted. It's been this way all the way since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall in the garden. Remember the first question that the serpent put to the woman in the garden. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right, this has been the diabolical strategy almost since day one. Because Satan knows that if he can sever the root of communication, if he can sever the connection between God and the world, then, then he will have essentially removed God from the picture. Right? If God is not a God who has spoken... If God has not revealed himself, if he's not someone you have to listen to, if he's not someone who's told us what he is like and how we can know him and how we ought to live, well then, presumably we're free to do whatever we want. But if God has spoken, then we are obligated to listen. And so the, the foundational play in the serpent's playbook it is to seek to undermine the authority and the beauty and the trustworthiness of God's word. Friends, I think in many ways this is the most important issue that you need to settle in your mind. You have to choose who gets to speak authoritatively. Either it's you and your own opinions, your desires, your thoughts, your best judgment, or it's the world around you, right, with its myriad of voices telling you what is really good, what is best, what is right, what, what constitutes a life well lived. Or it's the Lord, the one who made the world and everything in it, the one who saves and delivers his people. It is his word that has the authority to tell us why we're here and what to believe and how to live. And friends, let's be honest, when, when life becomes painful and things aren't going the way we thought they would go, this gets difficult. The Israelites found it hard to believe God's promises when they were confronted with oppressive circumstances. The pain of daily life threatened to drown out the voice of the Lord in their ears. And friend, maybe you've been finding yourself struggling to trust the word of the Lord when things get painful. Perhaps you've tried to be faithful to some task or calling only to feel like it backfired on you. Maybe you refused to take part in something unethical at work and it cost you a promotion. Maybe you're pouring yourself out as a mother, but some of your kids aren't doing well. And you're wondering what you've been doing with your life. Maybe you've decided not to date people who aren't followers of Jesus. And now you feel alone. Maybe it's your health, your marriage, your career. It feels like you've done the things you're supposed to do, but it's, it's simply not working out. 
the, the input is not matching the results. Right? There are times in our lives, there are times in our walks with Christ when we're trying to be faithful, when we're trying to do the things we think God wants us to do, but it seems like we're failing. There are times when it seems like following God is making things worse. And in those moments, it can be tempting to doubt God's promises. We're tempted to go our own way. But brothers and sisters, that's the, that's the work of the serpent. We see there in verses 22 to 23, again, of chapter 5, that even Moses' confidence was shaken by the circumstances. Again, in chapter 6, verse 12, we have the, the same complaint in chapter 6, verse 13, the Lord repeats his commission. Moses, look, again, despite this seeming setback, nothing has changed. You're still the guy. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh. I'm going to deliver everyone. I think that's something of the significance of the, the genealogy of Moses that we see there in chapter 6, really from verses uh, 14 down to verse uh, 25. Right, the the genealogy there serves as something of a, a resume for Moses and Aaron. Uh, the, the question again is, is Moses qualified to speak on God's behalf? Are the words that he's speaking true? Uh, Moses lacks confidence. But what matters is not his, his eloquence, but, but God's commission. The Lord says here that he will speak through him, through his brother Aaron. Again, the point of the genealogy seems to be to tell us where exactly it is that, that Moses and Aaron come from. So we see there at the, the end of that section in verses 26 to 27, after the, the genealogy, uh, the author tells us, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts, it was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. So the, the author goes through the, the genealogy, the history of these brothers, and then says, these are the ones, these guys, they're the ones sent by the Lord uh, to speak to Pharaoh. The idea is that the word that the Lord speaks through Moses and Aaron is credible and authoritative. They're, they're not speaking their own thoughts. They're speaking on behalf of the Lord. And so Pharaoh should listen to them. And the Israelites should listen to them. Uh, the book of Exodus can help to remind us that the Lord is worthy of our trust, that we must believe what he says, even when things look grim. Here, God is going to make it impossible for Pharaoh to doubt him. And Lord willing, we'll see that in the coming weeks. We're going to see God pile up the evidence of his power. We're going to see God pile up the evidence of his commitment to delivering his people. Eventually, Pharaoh is going to let the people of Israel go. He will chase after them eventually, but the, the, the waters of the Red Sea will crash in on him and his army. And at that moment, he will have no doubts about who the Lord is. He'll have no doubts about whether the Lord's words are lying words or not. There in chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord says that he will multiply, he says, signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. There in verse 5 of chapter 7, the result of these signs and wonders will be that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so as we move into chapter 7, we see the, the, the first two of these signs and wonders that are going to unfold. 
in chapter 7, verses 8 to 13, there's a confrontation between Moses and Aaron on one hand and Pharaoh and his court magicians on the other. In chapter 7, verse 9, the Lord gives Moses and Aaron some instructions and they go off and in verse 10, we're told they do just as they were told. And just as the Lord had promised, as Aaron throws down his staff in Pharaoh's presence, it becomes a snake. Now, to me, that seems like a pretty convincing show. Pharaoh is not impressed. There in verses 11 to 12, he calls in his wise men, his magicians, his sorcerers, and they replicate the same feat. They throw down their staffs, and their staffs became snakes. Now, we know how Moses and Aaron did their sign, their wonder. How, how is it that these Egyptian magicians were able to do their, their trick? Here it seems that they used some sort of secret arts, it says. And there's, there's no reason that we shouldn't conclude that, that these magicians, empowered by Satan, uh, genuinely turned their staffs into snakes. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul describes the activity of Satan as all powers and false signs and wonders. Right? It, it shouldn't surprise us that the evil one can perform counterfeit miracles. Right? He can imitate. He can corrupt. And never in the Bible do we see him create anything. Right? That seems to be out of his power. But he does seem to have the ability to copy and imitate. And so we have now all these snakes on the ground. Right, and you can imagine what everyone is thinking. Moses and Aaron are probably terrified. Right, they just walked into Pharaoh's court. They just challenged the most powerful man in the world. They thought God was going to wipe him out. But here he seems to have the same power they have. You can imagine how excited the court magicians must have been. Right now the king was going to be happy. They might even get a bonus in their paycheck. You figure Pharaoh must have been pretty pleased with himself. Right, he had stared down the God of the Israelites, and it looks like he won. Right, Yahweh made one snake. He'd made bunches. But just then at the end of verse 12, we read that Aaron's staff, his snake, swallowed up the snakes of the court magicians. Snakes were very important in Egyptian religion and symbols. Right, if you think about it, if you've seen the National Geographic of King Tut's sort of headdress, right, it's got the, the large snake sort of uh, sitting out. It was, a, it was a sign of the Pharaoh's divine power. Right, and so here's a crystal clear sign for you, Pharaoh. Right, Moses and Aaron are confronting Pharaoh with the power of God. Right, and, and here their snake swallows up all the others. Right, the, the signal couldn't be more obvious. The Lord has more power than all your magicians. I have swallowed up your power. Right? This is what I think of your power, Pharaoh. Right? Again, the point is clear. Yahweh is the one who should be listened to. Do what he tells you to do. Israel, believe him. Pharaoh, listen to him. Everyone must listen to him. But there in chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Still... Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh still doesn't believe. He will not listen to what the Lord is saying. 
The, the second of the, the signs and wonders that we see in chapter 7 is the, is the very first of the ten plagues uh, that the Lord will unleash on Egypt. You, you see it there in verses 14 to 25. In response to Pharaoh's hardness of heart, the Lord sends Moses back with the next step. Right? God has not budged an inch in his demands. He's not negotiating. There in verse 16, he tells Moses this. He says, you shall say to him, the Lord, so Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Right? Because the Pharaoh has not softened, God instructs Moses to enact the first plague on the land. He turns the Nile River to blood there in verse 20. And in fact, all the fresh water and all the pots and all the, the canisters all throughout Egypt turn to blood. Now, this is a particularly appropriate plague to start with. Maybe you remember from chapter 1 that Pharaoh wanted to use the Nile to destroy Israel. Right? He declared that all the, the baby boys of the Hebrews should be thrown into the Nile. Here, Yahweh turns the Nile against Egypt. It serves to, to foreshadow that the ultimate deliverance of Israel will come through water in the Red Sea. Most importantly, the Nile was the very heart of Egyptian life. Right? This was a blow struck right at the very core of their world. Right? Their greatness as an ancient civilization was completely dependent on the Nile. It was the source of their water, their transportation, their food, their crops, their economy. Everything went through the Nile. No Nile, no Egypt, no Pharaoh. Right? The Nile was the lifeline of the most powerful society in the world at the time. And so the Lord is showing that he holds even their precious river in his hands. Can you imagine the panic when Egyptians went to the river for their morning bath or to draw water? I mean, seriously, think about it. If the power goes out in northern Virginia for two hours, like we lose our minds, right? Imagine if you were to go turn on the tap one day to brush your teeth and blood came pouring out instead of water. Right? Imagine it lasting a whole week with no sign of abating. This surely got the Egyptians' attention. Right? This, this plague serves to further the, the central storyline of the book of Exodus. Yahweh versus the false gods of Egypt. Yahweh versus the sort of diabolical, demonic idols that the Egyptians worship. Right? The Nile River was personified by three powerful deities. Right? You can imagine how important these, these false gods were in the Egyptian pantheon. And so God is here showing his total superiority over these non-gods. Right? Again, the Egyptians couldn't fail to get the point. In one day, by the hand of Yahweh, they have a, a water shortage, a food shortage, a transportation shutdown, an economic crisis, and a spiritual crisis. Right? God has executed judgment on all of their gods. There in verse 22, we see that the Egyptians and their magicians can't do anything about it. They are able, it turns out, to turn water into blood, which is actually not all that helpful when all the water in your country has been turned to blood. Right? If they could have done something to undo the plague, if they could turn blood into water, that would have been a useful mir miracle. 
But again, it seems that Satan can only imitate. And so when they take fresh water, all they can do is turn it into more blood. But just as Pharaoh doesn't learn the lesson of the snakes, so here in verse 23 of chapter 7, he simply goes home unmoved by the Nile being turned to blood. He refuses to take this to heart. Right? Even the people of Egypt seem to miss the point. When the Nile turns to blood, do they, do they come to their senses and say, hey, look, the God of the Hebrews, he must be the true God. Let's go to him for help. No, it says there in verse 24 that they, they dug wells. They, they dug in the ground looking for fresh water. So when you step back, I think you see Pharaoh is representing the devil's plan to spread disbelief. He doesn't believe. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? Right? The Egyptian people don't believe. And he wants to make life hard on the Israelites so that they won't believe. And so maybe that's the big takeaway for us this morning. Right? If you remember what we saw at the beginning, that the events here in Exodus are, are one significant skirmish in a much larger battle being waged by the evil one against God and his people, then I, I think that, that that story makes sense of what we see here in Exodus, and it also, I think, makes sense of our own lives. Right here in Exodus, God shows his supremacy over Pharaoh and the forces of evil that he represents. But it would be many centuries before God would make the supreme demonstration of his power over Satan in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his son to live a life of perfect faith, perfect obedience, the life that we should have lived, the life that Moses and the Israelites should have lived. And at the cross, Jesus himself paid the price for our redemption. He took on himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And so now we are free of the devil's claim on us. Ironically, God's ultimate victory over the evil one comes not by imposing plagues on others, but in taking our plague on himself. Jesus bore the wrath, the sin, and the death that is ours so that we might be truly free. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death and the forces of evil. And he's promised to one day return and make all things new. Brothers and sisters, that's the truth that we hold on to when life is painful. When it seems like serving the Lord is actually making life harder. God has accomplished a great victory over our enemies. God has spoken to us. He's promised to deliver us. He's fulfilled that promise in Christ. He's promised us that when we walk according to his word, uh, we will be blessed both in this life and in eternity. And he's promised that the Lord Jesus will return and make all things new. It's that truth that we remind ourselves of when we come to the Lord's table. Here at the table, we have a reminder that it was through the, the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus that our great enemy was defeated, that our redemption was accomplished. And so we come to the table to remind ourselves of things that it's easy to forget. When the difficulty of life 
when the pain of, of following Christ in a broken world seems to be too much, when it feels like it's going to cause our faith to fail, we, we come to the table and we remember that these are the things that are really true and that God has kept his promises to us. Now, before we come to the table, uh, we want to take a moment to examine our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul uh, tells us, he says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're going to come to the table together, and the Lord's Supper is for all who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ, for all who have demonstrated that by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized, for all those who are connected to a gospel-preaching church through membership. You see, Jesus' invitation to his table is very gracious. It's not a call for the very best among us to come forward and have fellowship with him. It's not an invitation that you can earn through your good deeds. This is not an offer extended to you as a reward for your obedience. It's not a performance bonus. Rather, it's a gracious invitation. The invitation to come now to the Lord's table is held out to you on the basis of Christ's obedience. It's his goodness that matters, not yours. So friends, if you've had a bad week, if you've sinned, if you're tempted and discouraged, if your faith feels like it's flagging, if, if suffering has, has sown seeds of doubt in your heart about whether the Lord can really be trusted, then come to the table. Because it's here at the table you find your faith strengthened and nourished by the Lord. Here at the table, we're reminded that despite our sin and our failure, the Lord does not reject us. He doesn't recoil back from us. He doesn't despise us. But he welcomes us as his friends. But with all that said, the Lord's Supper is also not something to be taken lightly. So if you know that you're not a Christian, then this, this meal is not for you yet so instead of coming forward now, uh, use this time to think about your need for redemption, your need for deliverance. And we would love nothing more than to, to welcome you to the table of the Lord at some point in the near future. Or if you claim to be a follower of Christ, but if, if your life is marked by sin that you have no intention of turning from, if you insist on holding bitterness in your heart against a brother or sister in Christ, well then do what Christians do. And repent of your sin. Turn from it. Confess it to the Lord and turn your back on it. And come to the Lord's table. Right? This is a meal for repentant sinners. So we'll take a moment to confess our sins to the Lord. We'll have a moment for quiet reflection and confession. Then I'll lead us in a corporate prayer of confession. And then we'll sing and we'll celebrate the Lord's redemption together. Let's pray.